Sing Glory! Today we're sitting down with Jason Logan, creative director, graphic designer, author, ink maker, and the founder of the Toronto Ink Company. He's somewhere on the color spectrum between being this alchemical wizard, an artist and father who sees the importance of color and how, on a subconscious and conscious level, it relates to and conducts our very lives yet still manages to retain his bright eyes and bushy tail. And I guess that's the most important part. A total child ready to pounce on the next acorn he comes across. Or, on the contrary, cigarette butts. Because acorn caps make for silver, whereas tobacco, golden hues. It's in this bridging of our natural world with that of our man-made domains that Jason seeks to imprint his own life into that of his palates. Roses are red, and if violets look blue, that's because anthocyanins can vary in hue. I've got Twitter to thank for that one. This is Palette with Jason Logan. A quick heads up, we're dealing with an overseas conversation here, so the audio may reflect this. Coming to you from Toronto, Canada, in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. I guess that I am someone who is curious about um, experimenting with my hands and I guess all of my senses and uh, exploring the world through materials. And you mentioned that you're you're pretty into gutsiness. What's your relation like with your intuition and gut? I guess I feel like part of what I do both as like an ink maker and just as a kind of like um, artist that likes to experiment is I sort of always start with my body in a way, you know, like I like to, I like to go out into nature or into the city or find a sort of um, place that's really interesting to me and, um, and sort of follow my feet and hands where they lead me. So, um, I guess the gut part there is just um, maybe more of an intuitive being drawn to things. Um, I think a lot, a lot comes through your intuition when you um, wander when you wander around. At what point did intuition become an active component within your own life? Um, I think I've always been um, a bit of a wanderer and. Um, These are like really, I love your questions, but they're also like, they're sort of questions I've never been asked before. So I'm just trying to like sort of think them through as you're saying them. Um, it's cool. Like, I just feel like I've been, I've been on this sort of book tour with, with my ink making and I feel like I always get the same sort of set of end questions, which I feel like I have really clear answers for. And you're kind of like pushing me in directions that I'm not used to going so it's like both satisfying and it might take me a minute to kind of like acclimatize my brain to that like line of questioning um but it's it's cool it feels good okay um, cool I think let me think like <laughs> um um I'm just trying to uh, figure out the best way to answer that question I think like as a the kid, I spent a lot of time just like by myself in nature, um, kind of um, going into a kind of contemplative place. Like I, I just remember spending a lot of time with like sticks and sand and like uh, 
kind of being somewhere in the woods and just like very carefully looking at like the way like a little bud was appearing on a branch or something and I, I kind of have that it kind of goes a long way back in my history this feeling of sort of um kind of getting in touch with nature in a way that's sort of not not really based on words or art or anything but just more of a like commuting with nature or something and I also remember really strongly like connecting with um like certain landscapes I was really into train tracks and I remember being really into grapevines and um I think that those really early childhood connections to certain places and like species of plants and weeds and certain um, rocks and geography like that feels like the beginning of something intuitive, you know, yeah. Not like something that I was just sort of drawn to uh, mag- magnetically. And then, you know, I'm now in my mid forties and I'm sort of just coming back to some of those early fascinations, you know? So I feel like something was, set in motion at a very young age in terms of my guts and I think that you know I sort of spent I don't know like 20 or 30 years doing like graphic design and art direction and creative direction and um, putting together books and working as an illustrator and doing things that were very based on other people's needs and kind of um, exacting specifications and And then I started wandering again and making my own ink. And I feel like I'm kind of coming back to that sense of just following, following myself kind of, you know? So yeah, it's where I think I'm sort of maybe like I was a gutsy, like it's like I was and then I spent a lot of time kind of not following my gut. And then I'm sort of feel like I'm back. I got again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It comes full circle and it's, beautiful how when you hear as a child so many people were almost where they needed to be and who they at their core really are and there's so much noise and we lose all of that along the way and then we have kind of that midlife moment where you come back to yourself did you find that your family did they give space to that um when you were a child were there any people that you looked up to that also were very in tune with themselves? Well, I grew up in um, a bunch of different places. My dad was a minister, and we moved around to a lot of little small towns. And um, so I think, and I found it hard, I think because we did so much moving, I found it hard to, like, connect with um like other kids or, or mentors, you know? So I feel like a lot of my connection at a young age was with um, the places I was in. And I feel like that, I feel like a lot of what I learned, I learned through um, almost like the landscape itself. Um, my parents were pretty supportive of, like they were open, very open, very connected with nature and open to, you know, working with your hands and all kinds of, like there definitely were sort of skills that I learned but I think um I guess in terms of the journey it does feel like kind of a solo it was sort of a solo thing as a as a young kid yeah especially when you don't have those say those immediate human connections and it's almost like that dialogue with the environment 
as the environment is something that you're always going to be surrounded with, that's where you found grounding and turned to. So from what I've learned, you've worn and you wear many hats. But the biggest transition, it seems to me, is that when you made that perspective switch on the materials you were using as an artist in relation to the bigger picture, ethicality and sustainability. And this also runs in parallel to you becoming a father, but I love it if we could speak a little about that moment and how this inner dialogue came about and what were those first immediate steps you also took in integrating this into your workspace as an artist? Yeah, well, I was pretty clear, like, when I... Um had my first kid, I was pretty clear that I wanted to be an artist that could work in my own home, you know? So I, I kind of wanted to be able to um, make art and think about materials like, you know, in my kitchen or like in my upstairs studio. Like I just, I wanted to, I didn't want to separate my art from my kind of domestic life. Um, so that felt important to me and also the idea that um you know when you go to the art supply store and you look at the back of your art supplies they almost all have like a toxicity warning on them yes and i really felt like if you like why do colors have to be um poisonous uh, so i was very interested in the idea of um finding art materials that i could use that um well, in some cases, I make art materials that are actually edible. Um, but I really wanted, you know, sort of non-toxic art supplies that I could use with my kids and feel um, like they were beautiful and had subtlety and had all the things that I wanted and and that they were also non-toxic. And that just sort of led me naturally to, um, I mean, it sort of forced me to do some real experimenting because there's just not a lot out there and available that's... Um, natural and non-toxic in terms of art supplies. When you got more into this, did you find that there was more of a community already practicing within this space? Or was it really, once again, like a very solo journey? And Because uh, I'm, I'm seeing that your inks are being stocked in places such as Japan and via Toronto Ink Company, the Instagram account, I found so many amazing people as well. Um, but when you first started, did you find that there was somewhat of a platform or not really? Well, I I mean, when I first started, I was like, I can't believe that there's nothing really anywhere to be found about how to make ink. Or even like when you think about the ink in your pens, like what, what is it made out of? Like there's no, you know, they don't give you an ingredient list anywhere. And it was really hard to kind of get to the bottom of like, you know, how did people used to make ink? How do people even make it now? Um, and, and, you know, what are some of the recipes that are people are experimenting with? And I found, when I started, I, I found almost nothing. There was some a bit of information about black walnut, which is a really easy one to make and one of my favorite uh, colors and inks. But beyond that, there was very little to be discovered. So, um, you know, one of the big things that I did in the last few years was I, I made a book. And the book um, is kind of the book that I wished I'd had when I started when I started this out, you know, because so I did feel so alone. Um, but the amazing thing, like, not to make it an ad for Instagram, but, like, the amazing thing for me was just that when I, I just started posting, 
you know, kind of as soon as I started the company, I started posting to Instagram just as a kind of like, here's what I just made, like, and this is how I made it, you know, and by being kind of open about the process and what I was liking and certain material combinations and what they looked like on paper, by sort of doing that in a really open way, I discovered that there's, um, yeah, there's a huge community. It's all over the world, people experimenting with um, making their own art supplies and, and non-toxic color and um, people, you know, carving their own pens and um, people looking deeply into, like, um, medieval alchemy recipes around uh, ink. And, I mean, it's just, you know, and then there's, like, poets and writers who love ink and will only work with a, you know, a dip pen. And, you know, I mean, there's just a, I think once you, here's like, here's like a gutsy thing is just once you really clearly sort of show people what you're up to, um, the amount that you get back is just unbelievable. You know, I thought I was alone and I wasn't alone at all, actually. You opened up and it's when people kind of get over that part of standing in their own way and really putting out there what they're doing. That's when that human connection really happens. Yeah, I mean, it's just like taking that leap. Like, when I first when I first started posting, I think some of my, like, you know, friends in the publishing industry and stuff were like, you're doing what? Like, you're making, you're like, things you pick up off the street and you're, like, making that into, co- like, they, and, and it looks kind of messy, you know? And I just sort of, it was sort of like, almost embarrassing when I first started putting it out there, you know, and I, I think people weren't getting it and, uh, but I sort of just kept going and I think the more you're able to like show your kind of, um, almost your weirdest side, you know, if you're able to show the failures that you're making and the, and the sort of back end of things and all the, um, peculiar things that come out along the way. I feel like it's that. There was a kind of visual honesty there that was just harvested an amazing collection of collaborators and other artists and other like material experimenters and scientists. And yeah, it really opened up a kind of a window and also a door, I guess, for me. Yeah, getting really comfortable with being uncomfortable and vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a continual process too, you know, like you sort of, I think you have to sort of keep pushing those limits because it's, I think it's easy to sort of open yourself up once and start to get some feedback from that and then sort of stop there, you know, like I think that that really showing what you're up up to is something that's a kind of continual process. Since having grown this platform, at one point along this process, did you start to think about making this an accessible resource and commodifying the inks from from this moment of you, this true grit scrappiness and people judging you to being like this is an actual product and I want to make it accessible for people? Um, well, I actually, like right from the start, I liked the idea of like calling it the Toronto Ink Company, but like kind of giving it a kind of, at least a commodity name. Um, and and I first, you know, I started with the Black Walnut Ink, um, which I discovered like on the way to work one day. Um, 
And basically, you know, from after about a week of experimenting with the black walnut hulls and making this nice, rich, dark brown ink, I, um, I kind of immediately put it into bottles and designed a little label for it and kind of kind of made it feel like a company, you know, like made it feel professional and feel like a company. And I packaged up the inks and I sent them off to like illustrators and artists around the world that I loved and had worked with before. So I sort of started off almost immediately with a feeling of like, I want this to be a, a kind of a company. But um, it really, that it was just, like that's kind of as far as it went it was it was still like me just sort of experimenting in my kitchen with my kids and and then it had this sort of overlay of like i wonder what this would look like in the hands of of artists and illustrators that i love um and then um i think just as i guess as i started to get feedback you know like i got feedback from artists i got feedback from um Every once in a while, like a company would call me. Like I got a, I was contacted, I guess a couple years ago now by a, a press in Michigan who wanted to make a limited edition uh, set of black inks. And uh, I worked with them to do, to, to make a nice set of five black inks all made like five different ways. So it kind of like forces you to kind of really examine what that color black is. Um, so that was sort of like a commission and a job, and and I you know produced a beautiful box for it, and really like worked on the labels, and really really worked on the recipes. Um, and then not long after that, I was contacted by uh, Harley Davidson, who wanted to make a ink um, based on coffee. So I did a project with them and a like a screen printing uh, company, and really figured out how to make coffee ink. So. I think as I as I sort of put myself out there and showed what was possible in the world of ink in terms of kind of storytelling and experimentation, I started to get commissions. And I think that once once you start getting people asking for specific things, it, it starts to feel a little bit more, I guess, of the world rather than just purely personal, you know? Yeah. And then, I mean, really, a lot came from just that Instagram account and then the sort of uh, the way in which I presented the combination of sort of materials experimentation and what that looks like on paper as art, kind of. Um, And out of that, I was contacted by um, this guy, John Gall, who's like one of my favorite um, book cover designers of all time and he uh he had just started a job at abram's book as their like commissioning their um art and design books and he he just out of the blue he'd seen my instagram account he just sort of out of the blue contacted me and said could we turn this into a book could we turn this account into a book and i said yes we can let's do it and then i had to figure out how that how that worked and since having founded the Toronto Ink Company as well, where where have you found that the biggest demand for these products and this knowledge is actually coming from? Um, well, I mean, there are different pockets around the world. Like, I think there, because it's the Toronto Ink Company, there are a lot of people in Toronto who just love the idea of telling little micro stories uh, within Toronto, you know, so there's that population. And then, um, 
you know, in Japan, there's like a really particular relationship with um, ink and color and art materials that goes back like thousands of years. And um, there's something in what I'm doing that's uh, that's found an audience in Japan. And I and I work with a couple Japanese artists uh, who just have such an attention to sort of details and material, and that's sort of opened me up to a whole way of thinking. Um, Australia has like an amazing scene of, um, you know, fascination with ochre and iron based color. And um, I've met a couple artists who work with making their own um, uh, like brushes and pens and stuff out of weird sticks and things that they find. Like there's just a real peculiar and amazing scene in Australia um, around kind of makers of art supplies. Um, Calif- I just got back from California. I just did a little sort of mini tour of California and there's like an extraordinary scene there of just a real relationship to the kind of non-toxic and natural color and a lot of natural um uh, dyeing and harvesting of plants in California. That's and that, that was a real eye-opener for me. Like so many amazing sort of new collaborators and experimenters there that I met. Um, you know, it's it's in pockets. It's it's in, in pockets all over the world. This I don't know. I've been calling it the color revolution. Like I feel like this idea that color doesn't have to be in the hands of just a few you know german chemical producers but it's something that humans used to know a lot about and used to get a lot of kind of like like almost spiritual energy from anyway i think it's time to bring that back yes yes we shouldn't have to be afraid of the color that we use it, it's color is so representative of emotion and it has auras and it's, it's so widely diverse and it's so powerful and how it can shape the way we feel especially in branding and all the commercials and advertisements and everything that is thrown at us all day long but I love how you really reference it as being a spiritual factor as well and the ink itself is so much more rep- it's just so much more in that we need a more conscious and intention based approach to how we're conducting our lives from seeing it within the food and the fashion industry we are slowing down and truly looking at the impacts our actions carry and in your own work i really love how you touched on it being this revolution and that commercialized ink such as the ones we use in a domestic setting to the art supply store and on a bigger scale it can just be sustainable and responsibly sourced. Um, and your book is definitely, I feel, a step in this direction where it's going to familiarize and educate people and really let them take this step within their own lives. But in touching on that, it is this revolution. How have you handled maybe, say, some of the feedback? Because I've read some of the reviews and that people are struggling with say some of the preservation of like the ink and in that taking on as a serious craft, how are you moving forwards with these obstacles and how does the Toronto Ink Company play into this? Well, I mean, I think there are, um, 
you know, it is, it's a, it's a, the book kind of introduces people to a world of like foraging natural color. There are, there's, you know, there's like 12 or 13 recipes in there that are all sort of like, um, pretty easy to work with, you know? And, uh, I think, you know, one piece of the feedback that I've had is like, people are like, well, this is, you know, these are, these recipes are pretty basic and, uh, you know, they almost wish for more depth or more complexity there. And I kind of felt like I purposely wanted to just offer, um, like a place to start, you know, rather than trying to be trying to give every tiny detail of a million different recipes. Um, I sort of wanted to give people things that I know work and just kind of give you immediate feedback. Um, and then let people kind of experiment from there because I think that, uh, I think that what I'm most interested in is this idea of, opening people's eyes to like the color that's all around us. And, um, when you kind of give people really exact step-by-step information, you're, you're, you're kind of taking it out of that realm of the personal, you know, like I just really wanted to um, give people enough information that they could kind of then play in in whatever way they wanted to play. And I, I think there's, there's lots of room there for people to, invent their own recipes or go deeper into any of these recipes or, you know, hopefully improve on, you know, I hope that, I hope that people will read my book and feel like this is just the beginning. Um, I mean, the other thing, the other kind of feedback that I get a lot, I don't know if, if you're referring to this as well, but, um, a lot of people talk about, especially when people make ink, they want it to be archival, you know, like they want it to last forever. Yes. And, uh, um, and this is a big thing in the world of natural color is like, you know, people are like, well, wait a second, will this fade though? Or like, is it light fast? Or is it like, um, you know, how long will it last? Or I'm an artist, you know, and if I use your inks, like, will they, you know, and then I sell them to someone like, will will they fade over time? You know, I get a lot of these, these kind of questions about natural ink, because the, the thing about, you know, if you go to an art supply store or a stationary store and get get a bottle of like say you know intense blue ink that's your favorite color blue it's you know it's the same it's just very stable like ink is in general really stable so it's the same every time it reacts the same every time it, it lasts for a long time it's archival it's light fast you know that's what you get from uh, synthetic color but it's also it's dead and if you if you buy if you make your own bottle of say wild grape ink, it's it's not necessarily light fast. It might be fugitive. It might fade over time. But it is changing, and, and it's unexpected, and it gives you all these like amazing results that you were never planning. And it's got the beauty of being alive. Everything's becoming very experiential based. Like retail isn't just a retail store anymore. Everything is becoming an experience. And with these inks and foraging and bringing this all onto whatever medium you may use as an artist, you're really bringing the, the grit and like the minerals of the earth to, or and your surroundings to your canvas. I think there's a reason that 
fashion and retail and like a lot of our kind of commercial world is moving towards something experiential. I, I think it's just because it's just more, it's actually more satisfying, you know, like there's something about, and especially when you're able to connect to it personally, you know, like if you, if you go out and you find a, some little weird nut or seed pod or something on your walk with a friend, come back and you take it home and you put it in a pot and you boil it up for like a couple hours. And, and even if the color that you get is a sort of, you know, subtle yellowy brown color, if you've made it yourself and you put it on a piece of paper and you sort of look carefully at it and watch it sort of shifting and changing and it gets a little grainy and it's kind of moving around on the page in unexpected ways, like the the satisfaction that you get from that is just it's it's un, you can't compare it to some you know bright orange that you buy at the H and M store or something you know like it's just it become it's a color that becomes yours and it's and it's connected to the memory that you have of of going out there into the woods and and having a walk with your friend or whatever it was that sort of led you to that color. I just think when you add story and experience to a color, you get something really just like deeply satisfying and powerful. It's of you and it's it's of the earth and it speaks to all the places you've been and where you currently are and it holds a little part of you in it. And yeah, yeah. I mean, think of it. Even imagine just like for traveling, you know, like you, instead of, instead of like sending a postcard back home to your family, if you're able to, you know, make a color from that place and send a little make a little bottled landscape of the place that you're traveling to and and make a, even if just you put a little blob of that color on it on a piece of paper and send it out as a postcard like that becomes a real marker of, of where you've been a palette of where I am right now this is so cool yeah. and it's not just and, and, and a like you get these subtle, subtle, unexpected colors that really have story behind them, but they also they have a scent and they have a texture and they have um, like they're again they're alive. You know they're alive in a way that nothing you get at an art supply store is alive. Yeah, and bringing it back a little closer to home, how has this dialogue with your surroundings and color been a part of family life and especially that of your children? I've got three kids. Kids. And, you know, the youngest one has just got an absolute eye for all of the, you know, plants, weeds, rocks, like little things that I've pointed out to her um, that are great for collecting to make ink. So um, she's constantly on her walk home from school will be finding the little, you know, there's a plant called lamb's quarters that grows this little these little pink dots on it and it's only like one in every hundred of these weeds that have the little pink dots on them but you know she she notices it every time and always brings me home a couple of leaves with these little pink dots on them and then we then you know and then we grind them up with a little vinegar and you kind of really bring that pink color out of them so she's like my my foraging expert my middle son is really interested in some of the like labeling and naming the colors and uh um, he's kind of like the, the the packager and graphic designer, you know. My oldest son is interested in some of the, cal you know, alchemy and cooking. So, you know, each 
each child has their own kind of interest in what I'm doing. And it's, it's amazing how ink making can just sort of bring out kind of a bunch of different exploratory qualities. And I wouldn't say it's just in kids, but I think kids are amazing for, I mean, they kind of open up my eyes to things because they don't have any prejudices around what, what should or could be made into ink. Um, I've got a story in my book about, uh, I sometimes do a, like kids' birthday parties and, uh, you know, we go out on a, a foraging mission and then we make our own inks and package them up. And there was a, a party that we had for my, it was my oldest son and his friend, uh, his friend Otis was started collecting cigarette butts off the street. He said, you know, can we make ink out of this? And of course I said, yes, because I just, you know, that's my policy is, is that I say yes to, to anything. And, uh, and then we took them home and we, it, it turns out that, uh, tobacco actually makes an amazing, really beautiful and strange ink, you know? So sometimes it's that, it's a kind of attitude in kids of like not making any separation between what is a plant and what is a weed and what is, you know, there's just this amazing sort of formless quality to the way that kids approach ink making that I find really inspiring. And yeah, there's like this, this, this structure that we may gain over time as we reach adulthood that hasn't quite crept into their perspective yet. But have you seen that through yeah. the, the community of your kids when they're hanging out with their peers, have they, say, introduced this within their own friendships? Yeah, I think they're, they're spreading the word, you know. it's uh, I think kids are really fascinated by tactile stuff. And I think they also like, I don't know, I mean, all kids are different, actually. It's hard to, it's hard to make generalizations. But I, I do think that, I think that there's a bit of a popularity around, um, like, I, when you think of, like, the popularity of, like, slime, slime, you know? Like, I think oh about God, yeah. um, the ability, you know, like, the ability to just sort of do, you know, to make mud pies or to make slime or to do something with your hands where you get to see kind of goopy transformation, in a kind of immediate way, I think is that's something that that spreads like a virus, you know, like I think there's something in that that my kids have been able to share with their friends. And, you know, I, I hope it just keeps spreading this notion that it's possible to make color from almost anything. And what are your favorite ingredients? I love iron. Like, I think iron is amazing because you've got like... You've got rusty nails and bits of, like, rust, which is always, like, it's sort of something found in every city, and it kind of often defines, like, a certain neighborhood, like the kind of rust that you see is really interesting. Um, and then also iron-based pigments from rocks. So all the, like, ochre colors of human history are made from an iron base. And I, so I'm, I'm interested in iron just because it has this, the kind of chemistry and physics of iron is really interesting. The electrons do all kinds of amazing things depending on what environment you put them in. So if you, you know, if you add a rusty nail to um, a bunch of acorns, you get a beautiful sort of silvery color. If you add, you know, a piece of iron to vinegar, you get this iron and water, which has a, which has like a million different colors in it. Um, so I'm interested in iron as an ingredient. Uh, I love wild grapes because there's so much that goes on there. You can make black ink. 
drink from carbonizing their the vines of wild grapes. You can use the juice of wild grapes to make a beautiful, rich purple color. You can use the sap that's in the wood of uh, grape vines to make a binder that works in all kinds of different inks. So I love wild grapes. I love drywall dust. Like I love the color white. Um, Turmeric is amazing. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it's sort of it depends on the day. Like I, I, I'm, I'm sort of I'm really in love with all kinds of materials and ingredients. And what have you found has been the hardest color to make? Weirdly, green has been really difficult. You know, even though our world is, you know, if you see it from outer space, you sort of see blue first, and then you see green. You know, there's so much. You know, all all living plants are you know, based on chlorophyll, and so there's so much green in the world that it's a really hard color to extract from things. So green has been a, finding a bright green has been very difficult. I make kind of like a golden green from uh, buckthorn berries, which you kind of have to do a bit of uh, pH balancing and chemistry to make make it work, but it uh, it does make a beautiful golden green color. But, but a kind of bright green has, has eluded me. I don't know. So I remember climbing trees when I was younger, and I'd always have so much, yeah, like the moss would rub off on me. Have you ever experimented with moss? No, I haven't, actually. I've got a little, I've got some, um, I had an artist, one of the artists that I collaborate with. I get a lot of stuff in the mail, and one of the artists that I collaborate with just sent me a, um, like a Ziploc bag of moss from a tiny little island so I'm gonna, I might that might be my afternoon project today yeah moss is a beautiful green color yeah it was always so dang hard to remove the stains I'm like oh that might be something yeah I know I mean I, I actually was contacted about a year ago by a grass company asking to make a grass green and it it's true like it stains it's weird green will stain clothes and stuff but then it's very hard to like juice it to get a, a stable uh, liquid version of that green. Not not impossible, but difficult. <laughs> Where would you like to travel next and kind of experience and pull from what the environment has to offer there? I would really love to go to um, the Middle East, uh, just where, um, you know, where some of the very first writings of human history began, you know, in Mesopotamia. And uh, for instance, there's a there's a there's a kind of ink called Ogal ink, which is kind of a really archival dark black ink that's got this kind of amazing long history. And uh, little oak galls that you use to make it, which are formed by they're actually made by wasps. They're the best oak galls come from Aleppo, and I always thought I could go to Aleppo and collect oak galls there. There's a, bu- a bunch of the kind of traditional ingredients of um, ink making come from, well, either Egypt or the kind of Mesopotamia area. So I, I'm, I'd be interested to sort of look into that realm and to maybe see some of the museums with like the first writings on papyrus and kind of get into that history. I'd also really, I've, I've never been to Japan or China, and that, that is also one of the birthplaces of ink. The ink is mostly in a solid form. That's just a whole different world, the world of ink sticks. Uh, so that's something I'd, I'd love to sort of research further and look into. That would be um, amazing. I can already see books dedicated to the colors of these cities and these countries. That'd be so cool. 
Yeah, I mean, every every little you know every little place has its own. You could you know you can do a palette for every little place you know. So it's uh, this is kind of what I want to do for the rest of my life. There's a whole globe to to open up. Yeah, it's the obscurities and the nooks and crannies of the world. Yeah. Before we close out, I uh, just want to ask if if you could give an example of a time in your life where. It was guts versus logic, and you want me your gut. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, you know, this year because I've been on a book tour, I I've, I've ended up in a few different sort of places where I I was forced to kind of like you know just sort of ad lib what I was doing, you know. And what comes to mind when you ask that question is is my trip to Washington D.C. I was asked to go down there and do some foraging with. Uh, the NPR, the National Public Radio in, in, in Washington, D.C., and I was really excited to, I was kind of excited to be on radio talking about ink, and I thought that would be amazing, and they really wanted to do a foraging mission with me, and I was a little bit nervous because I I had no idea what you could forage in Washington, D.C., you know, and I didn't have a lot of time to figure it out. I just sort of came the night before, and then I was going to be foraging with them in the morning, and uh, so I sort of sent out a call on Instagram uh, to people saying, like, what what can I find in Washington, D.C.? Does anyone know where a black walnut tree is? Like, I, you know, just sort of asked some questions and, and so found a kind of network of, um, there were some amazing foragers, there were some witches, there was a, a great chocolate maker, and they all kind of went out on the streets looking for black walnut trees for me and a few other ingredients that I knew would be interesting to find. And, and then the information came back, and it was like, all in different parts of Washington, D.C., and nothing was anywhere near the radio station, and they had found one black walnut tree, but there was no black walnuts on it, and so I sort of ended up, you know, I after much searching and research and fiddling around, I ended up basically with like 10 minutes before my interview and no idea what I was going to find um, on my foraging mission, and, uh, um, and then I, like, just before I got to the NPR building, I saw this little alleyway, and I was like, that sort of looks like my kind of alleyway. And I was I rented a bike, and I got off my bike, and I just started slowly walking down the alley. And I'm the closer I looked, the more I realized, I'm like, oh, there's like, there's a bunch of, like, first I saw some, you know, broken glass, and then I saw some cigarette butts, and I was like, oh, I guess I could talk about the cigarette butts, you know? And then and then I saw, um, what did I see next? Oh, I saw like a, a penny. And I was like, yeah, I can definitely talk about copper and pennies. And then right beside me, there, were, there was a beautiful little, little stand of chicory that were coming out of a crack in the sidewalk. And that chicory root is one of the ones that I love to use. And I just realized like all my searching around Washington, D.C. and all my like trying to prepare for this interview, it was really just... It was all in this alley, like all the materials that I needed to talk about how you could make color from a city were just sitting here in this alley that was, and the alley was literally like five minutes away from the building. And uh, I, I just, I saw it with my eyes and like I was just drawn to it. And I knew that this was the right, the right alley for me. And I just, yeah, I just followed my gut. I mean, I think that's, it's a critical kind of knowledge that we have in our bodies. Yes. Yes. I love how you were going to be interviewed about foraging and when we're when we're put in situations like that we really try and prep and prepare and set up the entire schedule but here you are it's about foraging and 
you really just had, you had to just forage. <laughs> yeah, I just had to do it. You know, it's, it's amazing like what happens when you just sort of get almost out of your brain and into your body. I mean, I think that's why I was excited to talk to you today. It was just, uh, it's, it's a trick. You know, like you just spent so much time planning and thinking and trying to figure out things, you know, and then it so often turns out that that moment where you're able to almost just like move with your body's own, I don't know, there's something magnetic between the, the world and your body, you know, that happens when you kind of get out of the planning and, and, and into the gutsiness. Yes. It's hard because we're sitting down so much these days, whether it's in an office or you're working from home and you're freelance, it's like we just become a brain and that's it. And you don't feel the physicality of the self anymore. Just going outside and just standing there. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's so flat, you know. When you're working in an office, there is there's something so sort of flat and gridded about that. And yeah, getting out into the world and and moving through space in a more sort of three D way is is just uh, yeah, it's inspiring. So many things happen through that. Yeah. There's, I feel like there is, um, you know, there's the other ink makers and pigment people, but there are also, I feel like there's also a few other scenes that I, I really cross over into. Like there, there's the foraging people, the mushroom people, definitely the, the chocolate makers. There's some great like witches. There's kind of a punk domestic scene that I'm really into. Like there are definitely, you know, there's a kind of Venn diagram that, that natural ink making lives in. This is Jason Logan, Guts and Glory, signing off. This was Palette with Jason Logan. Refer to the show notes to further get to know our guest. Share your thoughts and show us some love by subscribing or again touch to be featured on the podcast. Released every other Monday, thanks for lending us an ear. Passing on the mic.